Good afternoon, New Philadelphia. Hey. If you consider what makes certain nations strong, you can argue that the greatest forces in the world have certain things going in its favor. They have certain assets or attributes that don't allow other nations or other countries to just forcefully make their way in. Some countries have great military forces and resources that they're forced to be reckoned with. Countries can't just expect to walk in and take their throne by force because they can be devastated with the force that they have. Some countries have a great economic force so that if they were to be eliminated or destroyed, it could ruin the economic structure of all the nations around them. In some countries, they're not strong because they're strong within themselves, but they're strong because of the strong alliances that they've made with the other neighboring nations around them. You see, but every kingdom... Every country, every nation longs to have something that allows them to be strong in their own being. Did you know that even the kingdom of God has a force that can't just be overlooked? It's a force that has to be considered, thought through, and approached well when we consider what authority God has given to his kingdom. You might say to yourself, ah, I know what it is. The kingdom of God's great power and force is its holiness, the purity of the church and the bride of Christ. To that, I would say, sure, it's a part of it. You may say, ah, no, 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 no. It's not just holiness. It's the power of evangelism and discipleship to reach people and to increase the army of God, so to speak, as we move in that mission. And I would say, sure, that's also a part of it. But there is an authority and spiritual gift and power that has been handed down through the ages, which every single believer has access to today. And it is none other than the authority, the strength, and the power to love. To love is not just a loving thing, but it was the Lord's executive order that his people would employ it as a means to make disciples and change the world and even make the basis of our holiness. So today, I want to delve into the topic of the sort of love that is spiritually powerful and authoritative. And I intentionally am saying authoritative and love in the same sentence because love is not just an effeminate thing. Sometimes we, we think that love, and again, I, I don't want to diminish this. When I feel loved, I too feel butterflies, do you not? I love feeling loved. I love my face turning red when my wife appreciates me. I love these things. <laughs> I love the feeling of love. And yet sometimes the way that we think of love in our culture today, we often misunderstand it as just an effeminate or a weak or a sort of way where we're just called to understand one another. But Scripture never talks about love as just a feeling to be enjoyed but it's actually a power to be understood, reckoned with, and also 
given. I believe scripture tells us that love is not just a, we happen to do it for one another. But love is actually the most authoritative act we can commit to, not only as we witness to the world, but as we bring glory to God. And so in that light, I want to touch again on what makes love so powerful and authoritative today. But one of my other goals today in my message is that I hope that as we talk about pursuing this sort of love, it would also touch a nerve in all of our souls. It would touch the nerve of helping us understand that the way to live without regret during our time on earth, to live blamelessly, so to speak, before God, it's not just to be holy, it's not just to be pure, it's not just to be those things, although they are all included, but that the way to live blamelessly is to love in the way that we're going to discover today. So with that, we're going to go back into a familiar story. You heard it read earlier today from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, short man Zacchaeus, <laughs> climbs up a tree. Every child and kid has been familiar with this at some point or another because it's a fun story to imagine. But we're going to go deeper than that today to discover what it is about the way Jesus approaches this man <coughs> that helps us to understand the authoritative element of love itself. So with that, give your Bibles with you. Turn back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you're there, let me hear you say amen. Y'all are so good. You guys always beat me to it. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1. Again, the question is, what is it that makes love authoritative, spiritually powerful? And a force to be reckoned with. Luke chapter 19 verse 1. That's what the word of the Lord says. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd he could not. Because he was small in stature. Everyone say small. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. It's a cute story, isn't it? It's fun to imagine. Here comes Jesus walking through Jericho and you have a short guy named Zacchaeus and he just wants to look. He wants to find out and see who this Jesus is. And so because he can't see other people, right, grown man, probably in his forties or fifties, right? Hey, hey, come on, come on. He's trying to peer through, but people don't care, right? Like, whatever, man. Get out of here, short boy, right? But he's desperate. He's desperate enough to want to see Jesus that he channels his inner youth once again to go climb a tree. To get to a higher vantage point so that he might just be able to see him. The question that you have to ask yourself as we're going through this narrative is, why is he so desperate? What makes Zacchaeus so desperate that he would be willing to put himself out openly, possibly might be shamed for even going up that tree, but that he would do such a thing? What cues us into that is actually what comes in verse 2. 
Scripture writes that he was a chief tax collector and was rich. You might think, that's cool. Being a chief tax collector and being rich, why would you possibly need Jesus? Well, we have to understand one thing about the first century. It's that tax collectors had absolutely no honor in society. (coughs) Because they were people who bought tax franchises. If you could imagine that. Tax franchises from the nation of Rome. And what made matters worse was not that they just bought tax franchises to quote-unquote fairly tax people, but these tax collectors basically unfairly, unethically, in an oppressive way, taxed whoever and however they possibly could. What made matters worse on top of that was that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, but he was a Jew who was a tax collector. He is a man who sold out his own people to join forces with the the very country, the very nation, the very force that Israel is not too fond of. That he might leverage their power to oppress his own people. This meant that Zacchaeus being a chief tax collector, he didn't have much love from the folks around him. Naturally. You had every right reason to look at this man and say, he's completely unjust. Morally, ethically, in every sense of the word, there's no reason why this man should deserve any love or honor. In fact, some commentators even say, the whole country probably just wanted him dead. They didn't care if he was alive or not. Because the sort of people that he was probably taking from weren't other rich people. Zacchaeus made his riches off of everyone else's poverty. So to have one less tax franchise in your neighborhood would be a good thing. Because this man was only concerned about stealing the livelihoods of the people away from them. But there's more. When you look at verse 3, again, you can look at the end, and it says that he was small in stature. Now, sometimes in narratives, especially in the Bible, do you believe that there's not a single word that is made into Scripture that's not there for a reason? Amen? We have to examine that. Why would Luke include that detail about Zacchaeus being small in stature? It's not just a logistical detail, I don't think, that forced Luke to write that in to help us understand why he went up to the tree. Short people. (laughs) No one is short in this room, okay? No one is short in this room. Unfortunately, have a tendency in society to be looked at as less authoritative. As someone to be overlooked. So much so that we have a phrase for people who are more on the we side, but have a big authoritative personality. Call it a Napoleon complex. Right? Just like Napoleon himself, who, though being so short, was such a great military leader. He was a great conqueror. Because they have a chip on their shoulder. Now, what I'm about to tell you right now, It's not biblical canon, 
But it's a bit of imaginative work that I do as I look into and I try to understand, as we try to understand, what would drive a man like Zacchaeus to get to a point where one day he is stealing from his own people, that he would get involved in a trade so despicable, and yet he says, I'll go there. You may imagine, again, I want to highlight once again, this is not canon. It might be, but I'm just trying to understand why Luke included that description. Zacchaeus likely, in his upbringing, as someone who was possibly pursuing the holy order and so forth. In fact, Zacchaeus' name in the original language actually means pure. I don't think someone named pure one day wakes up and says, I want to be a curse. I want to defile my nation and my people. I actually think that Zacchaeus was the butt of every joke. I think that Zacchaeus was marginalized on his way to growing up, so much so that he grew such a deep resentment against the sort of people who were supposed to uphold him, love him, bring him into a safe community, but instead they chastise him and they cast him out. Because you see, people don't just walk into becoming a chief tax collector overnight. It's intentional, it's calculated, and it's thought out. Zacchaeus wanted to get back. But here's the thing. For all the power, for all the respect, for all the love that Zacchaeus tried to earn by oppressing his people, he got none of it in return. The only thing that Zacchaeus could hold on to at this moment in his life were his riches and his profession that made those riches for him. He had nothing else that he likely had planned out for. So you see, understanding these important details, it's easier to see that when Zacchaeus hears that there's a man named Jesus who's coming into town, this man Jesus, not only is he a man, but he's a teacher of the law, an amazing teacher who's doing amazing things. He's healing the unhealable. He's meeting the unmeetable. And he's loving the unlovable. And so upon hearing this, Zacchaeus, somewhere in the back of his mind, is going, I have not had a proper conversation in years. No one wants to talk to me. People hate me, rightfully so. And I feel like there's no way back. He's probably thinking, if there's someone who will give me the right judgment, that I cannot argue against, finality, to bring a definitiveness to my being, it will be my encounter with this man, Jesus. And on that account, Zacchaeus must come to look at Jesus. He doesn't just want to go up that tree. He's telling himself, I have to go up on that tree to see what he will do with someone like me. So verse 5 continues on. By saying, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
How does it feel when you go through a season of loneliness and someone dares to even look at you? Someone dares to even talk to you. Someone finds the courage to even acknowledge you. Not only that, the way Jesus extends his invitation to Zacchaeus, whom Jesus should condemn this man. Or he could do a fake love sort of thing. Hey, Zacchaeus. Bless you. And go on his way. But what does Jesus do? He stops for the worst person in town. And not only does he stop for him, he extends to him the greatest and most intimate fellowship that you could have in that first century. It's what we call table fellowship. That's why churches that are healthy eat together. Amen? Food. Food is, food is very spiritual, friends. It is. It's not just chicken with the three of us, right? That's why I never call it yum yum chicken. I always call it yum yum chicken. Two yums. It's yummy here, but it's also yummy here. Okay? Why? Because when you sit with someone across the table and you're saying, I'm willing to eat with you, you're literally inviting one another into the most intimate, regular, but vulnerable places. You know, to eat together is a vulnerable thing. You wouldn't know because you never look at yourselves when you eat, right? <laughs> right? I, I imagine how I look when I eat. Right? Mm, mm, right? <laughs> but it's the place where we open our lives together. And Jesus says, I want that with the swindler, cheat, unethical, unrighteous, immoral tax collector. So verse 6. It says that he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him Joyfully. Everyone say joyfully. Man. Sometimes I imagine that feeling that Zacchaeus had when Jesus acknowledged him. Zacchaeus probably told himself that I'm going to die alone. But he probably told himself I can die now in peace. Because I met one. But that one is more than enough. And when they saw it, that is the town and everyone around, they all grumbled saying, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Turn to your neighbor and say, sinner. This is a scandal, friends. This is a public scandal of the highest order. Jesus has chosen one who has the ire of 
everyone around him. Rome probably had no respect for Zacchaeus. They liked him because he was a pawn. They liked him because he was a tool. But they knew. He's a sellout. The people didn't like Zacchaeus because he was stealing from them. The religious leaders didn't like him either for all the ways that he's violated the law of God. Zacchaeus fits the bill as common public enemy number one. Because you see, when you look at other stories and other parables and other accounts in the Gospels, Jesus often heals someone, but like they have friends. You know what I'm saying? It's like the lame person has other lame people to relate with. Right? It's like, yeah, come on. Yeah, go, buddy, right? Like, at least you go get healed, right? Right? And then you have all the Pharisees who are amongst themselves, and there's always disagreement. But for the first time, you have an account where everyone is together. It's like when enemies are like, hey, let's, let's put down our disagreements for a moment. Because we can all agree on one thing. Jesus should not be eating with this guy. He's an abuser. He's an oppressor. He's a tyrant economically. He has wronged everyone in every wrong way. And we look at people like these, even in society today, and say, God's going to send judgment. He could. He may. But what I find fascinating is God has not left judgment in the hands of his people. What Jesus is doing is he's modeling at the expense of himself in front of the entire town just how far the love of God is willing to go. Because you see, Jesus here is breaking the rules. He's breaking the cultural rules of engagement, the cultural rules of of love. Don't we have cultural rules of love today too? If you meet with someone, you understand that sometimes the way that culture paints it or our own conscience paints it, there are certain sins that we believe are, are bad but okay enough. I'm going to say that again. We believe that there are certain sins that are bad but okay enough for God to be able to reach that person. Oh, you're addicted to drugs. Come on, there's a place for you here. Safe haven. It's the church. What? You're addicted to all this immoral stuff? Hey, 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 welcome. Could you imagine if a certain leader across the Pacific Ocean in a country with three letters as its acronym, where many of us might be from, were to come? Would you be able to say, the love of Christ be with you? We often don't do that towards those that we deem as irredeemable. In particular, those who oppress. Now, friends, I'm not trying to say in this message that oppressors are free to go. I believe in divine judgment and justice. I believe in order. I believe that there are consequences. Hear me out on this. There are consequences for every action. Every good action has a consequence. 
you bear fruit. But every act of sin, oppression, and evil also bears a consequence as well. Every man, in measure, has to take responsibility. I bring this up to help us understand that we have to look at love, but also ownership and responsibility as, again, tied together, but still we can look at those two things separately. I'm not saying that oppressors just get a free pass. The question that I'm trying to raise as the story, as Jesus is raising it in Zacchaeus, is this. Is there one whom God is unwilling to love? So Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. What I find so amazing about Jesus Christ is that there was no one holier, no one more pure, no one more righteous than he. And the question I ask myself when I look at the text today is this, how does he choose to use it? How does he choose to use his purity? How does he choose to use his righteousness? How does he choose to use his holiness? Because you see, so many people get it wrong in that when we feel that we are more holy, more righteous, more pure than the person sitting next to us in the church, we use that as cause and as reason to feel better about ourselves. That's fundamental if you're trying to pursue an orphan spirit. What happens, though, when you employ righteousness the way that Jesus does is this. He says, I'm going to use my purity as leverage to meet the unpure, to touch the untouchable. So holiness, though it is an attribute, a divine attribute of God, he is holy, holy being. He is so different and unlike us. And yet, God uses the very thing that is so unlike us to help us to become like Him. Translation for the church, your purity, your piety, your holiness, or your pursuit of it, it's not for your own or my own gain. It is that I would be able to use purity as leverage to bring those who we think cannot come into the fold of God and reach out to them. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why people get so mad at Jesus. Jesus, don't love Zacchaeus. Because if you love Zacchaeus, then what do you love me for? Jesus does not love any of his children for anything that we can give. Ephesians 1 gives the deepest reason as to the motivation and the cause of Christ's love. And it comes in a prepositional phrase. Paul writes that he chose us before the foundation of the world. Why? In love. He loves us just because he chooses to love us. It's not up to us, his people, then, to decide who is allowed or not allowed to receive that. People might have said in that picture, oh, he's going to eat with Zacchaeus. So Jesus approves what Zacchaeus does. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. 
Christ is not approving Zacchaeus. He is loving Zacchaeus. I want to say that again. Jesus is not approving Zacchaeus. He is loving Zacchaeus. Does anyone come to mind in your own life that you think to yourself, oh, what if church people see me with him or her? Oh my gosh, what would they think of me? They will think of you whatever they want to think of you. What will the Lord think of my heart? In the way that I choose to love. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is puzzling, isn't it? Because Jesus is doing what I call reverse evangelism. You know how we invite people into the church a lot of times today? Conditionally. Hey, hey, whoa, 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 what what do I have to do to be a Christian? Oh, you gotta you gotta read your Bible. Oh, you gotta pray. Oh, you gotta tithe. You gotta do all these things. Now, friends. I want, to, I want to say again, these things are incredibly important and foundational and fundamental to the life of the believer. But when you're inviting someone into the fold of Christ and you put conditions on them, people tend to believe that they're Christians because of those things that they've done. And they believe then that they will lose their Christianity if they fail to do those things. The amazing thing about the way that Jesus loves people is that he invites them without condition. He says, I must eat with you. I must meet with you. I must sit with you. I must enjoy your company today. Jesus prioritizes the encounter that love offers Without putting rules to it yet. Yet. Okay. He doesn't say, if you want me to come and if you want me to meet you, Zacchaeus, you have to first return everything that you stole. Order, my friends, is very important. How you do things is very important because how you do things dictates and determines the way the entire future will play out. What is so fascinating and amazing about the way Zacchaeus is so quick to give all of his possessions away in the encounter is this. This man probably spent all of his life saying, I want honor, love, respect, and credibility. And to do that, I'm going to make all this money. I'm going to bolster myself with all these things even to the point of taking things away. And you know what Zacchaeus found out? He didn't get a single one of those things that he longed to get with the profession and the path that he chose. This is what happens to most of us. We think we are more lovable. We think others should be more lovable 
just based on what they can offer and do. But if God loves us, and He does, you know what He always does in the life of the believer or the non-believer as we are growing and approaching Him? He shows us all the ways that everything that we try to offer to Him does nothing with regards to your status. Zacchaeus is so quick to repent and return and make amends because he recognized, I have all this money, I have all the riches that I could have possibly wanted, but I don't have love. I do not have honor. I do not have any of these things. And yet this man, just by calling him and sitting at his table, restored all of that to him. Which is to say, change. Don't be fooled by the person who changes out of fear. Don't be fooled by the person who begins to do stuff that makes them look more Christian just because they just start doing it apart from love. Because behavior can be changed, but not always sustained. Love, though, sustains all changes. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. Since love provides a space to meet and to receive all the needs that we have, we throw everything else out the door that doesn't need to fit in there. So you don't need money. You don't need status. You don't need riches. You don't need honor that comes from the world because he already gives it to me in full. Now, some of you guys might be saying to yourself, that sounds great, Pastor Billy, but what about people who abuse grace? Grace abusers. They flaunt their unrighteous living, call themselves a Christian, posting Red cups on Facebook. I don't know. You name it. Whatever fits in your box and your definition of someone who is a hypocrite. Let me burst your bubble, friends. Grace presupposes that something has already been abused. Grace presupposes that someone has already been violated and hurt. Why? The definition of grace is that in light of a wrong that you have already committed, you have still received better than you deserve. That is grace. So to say that someone is abusing grace as, as though I am not, is to now have changed the definition of what grace itself is. Why am I able to love the worst of the worst? Because Christ has met already the worst in me. Sometimes we get unco- I get uncomfortable when we look at people and go, Ooh, that person legit. Ooh, he's so good. Oh, oh, oh. Why? Because we love heroes. Right? We, we love people to follow who could help us justify our goodness. So that when we see people who are unlike us, we go, that's the hypocrite. 
that's the bad one. That's this or that's that. Friends, the only measure by which you and I are to compare ourselves with any single person in the entire universe is no other human. It is God himself. And when we compare ourselves in front of God, there is no question that we all stand on the same plane. So yes, I respect leaders. I am thankful for them. But you know what? I'm not called to turn them into my God. Which is to say that my righteousness, my peace, and my security can never come from any person or being or deed besides the person and deed of Jesus Christ. Grace, my friends, is scandalous by nature because it accepts the worst of not just the world, but the worst in me. I only begin to think that people are undeserving of God's love or so far from being able to receive it when this thought creeps up into my heart. Billy, you're legit. Like, you got some sins, you got some issues, but those issues are okay, sort of, but bad enough. Oh, that leader, so bad, that president, that friend, this person, that person, they're so bad. How could they do that? Oh, well, what about you? I mean, you just, you just, you just did your thing. Well, but everyone does that. I mean, come on. It's not like that bad. Now, I, want to do, I do want to speak truth. I do believe that there are degrees, right, in terms of sin with one another. But before God, Romans 3 already tells me that any sin already condemns me in front of Him. Who is the judge is the question. And in verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Love looks for the lost. I need to first believe that I was one who was sought after in my lostness by him. So again, the question, what sort of love is authoritative, spiritually powerful? And I even want to say this, what sort of love is the love that defines us as a church? It is love without reservation. A love that doesn't hold back. A love that doesn't deem certain subjects impossible of being the recipients of it. Now, we have limits. No human can love another as God loves us. And yet, 
I don't think God's conclusion out of that has been, don't love. How do I know this? You know, when you look at the progression of Matthew, it's very interesting that towards, you know, somewhat in the middle, latter part, someone asked Jesus a profound question. Out of all the laws, which are the greatest? Tell me, Jesus. Simplify it. What does Jesus say? One, love the Lord your God with all your might, heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second, he said, just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. How much do I love myself? Inordinately. I will try to escape danger. I will try to make sure that I do not come in harm's way. I will seek comfort. I will seek everything that's good for me. And Jesus just said, do that for other people too. I can't do it in full for every person. But I do believe God instructs our hearts through the Holy Spirit to key us in on maybe even the one way that we can extend love. You know what I love about what Jesus does today? How does Jesus love Zacchaeus? He eats with him. (laughs) Loving someone is not, hey, I just saved up all this money. It's for you, charitable organization. It's important. It's important. Justice, social justice is important. But my heart need be in it. We are called to love others. Perhaps not in the fullness that God can, but with that heart in all the ways that he does call us to. So God gives us the great commandments. But you know what Matthew also calls great at the end of the book? He said, Jesus gave us a commission that's also called great. Jesus said, go make disciples. Would you believe that there might be a tie, a connection with those two things? You don't just make disciples by forcing truth down someone's throat. You teach someone the truth like Jesus does. Objectively, personally, lovingly. You do it all in love. Shalem, I offer this message to you. Now, don't get troubled. I'm not saying this because I think you are an unloving community. It's actually the opposite reason. The sort of love that's present in this ministry, at this campus, it is astounding. I have said this over and over and over again from the first day that I came here. I have not ceased to feel the loving kindness of God through the affections of God's saints who are gathered in this place. Shilam, you have so much love. But the reason why I give this message to you is because I don't know what's going to happen to every single one of you in the months and in the years to come. I do not know what path or what journey God will put you on. But one thing that I do know is this, is that everywhere we go, God always challenges us 
with the heart to love. I think it's funny that there's always a place and a season where to love is difficult, or to love requires sacrifice. And there always comes a moment when people will surround me and they will say, it's not worth loving that person. They don't deserve your love. Now, again, I want want to bolster that a little bit because I think your friends are probably caring for you. They want to make sure that you're going to be okay, that you put boundaries and that you put proper limits in the giving of yourself. And yet, what makes the church the church fundamentally, it is this desire and ability to love without reservation as God has done so through Christ in us. Shilam, there will come days when you feel that someone is so undeserving of love. And yet, I promise you, before God, before your own conscience, the way that you will find yourself blameless is not just by doing all the right things. I believe is when we love well. Because love has no counter. What did the Proverbs say? Does someone hate you? Be really kind to them. In so doing, you pour hot coals over their face. (laughs) That's a wise statement. Have you ever tried that before? Pastor JP and I had this talk before. He said, he was telling me in the office about how the Lord encouraged them to honor and to love above and beyond. In fact, he preached on this at Hongdae. And he was telling me about it. You know what's amazing? Is that every person that he chose to love in that way, guess what happened to them? They began to express that same love back, not only to him, but to others as well. Love has no counter besides to just continue to spread it in the same way that it was received. Shilam. I encourage you, you loving people, continue in it. Continue to love. The merge is going to be taking place in a few months. Amen? Excited? I'm excited for you guys. But you know, sometimes when you have family regatherings, (laughs) it could be tumultuous. Oh, I, I cut my Thanksgiving turkey like this. Oh, I arrange my bathroom like this. I do like I do, I do, I do, I, 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 I. You will not regret the way you love. And that we would continue in it. Amen.